Hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of Terry's Talking. I'm David Campbell, sports manager at Cleveland.com, alongside Terry Pluto. As always, Terry, how are you this week? I am well, David. Lots going on out there with COVID, and we're seeing it uh, reflected all through Ohio, all through sports teams that Ohioans follow. It's been really crazy. Everybody is healthy and safe in your family, I hope. Yes, they are. Good. So far. Yeah, us too. We're trying to lay low and see how it goes um, next few yeah. days here with Christmas and everybody be safe out there. There's a lot, a lot going around, as we know. So, Terry, congratulations are in order again. <laughs> Your new book, Vintage Browns, made another uh, made a list. You made a, a list of Esquire's top 100 baseball books of all time a couple weeks ago. And this time, Vintage Browns has made a list of the best sports, sports books of 2021 by fansided.com. Congratulations. I'm really glad. So I'm, I'm, it's a nice thing. It's a fun book. And the, the other one, other wonderful thing has been how I've been getting emails and posts on my Facebook page, et cetera, and Twitter from fans who are reading it. And they just are, it's taking them back to a really fun time, you know, whether it's the Browns of the eighties or even just like a couple of guys of recent vintage of Tim couch or Phil Dawson or, uh, Aaron Shea is one of those, or going way back, uh, Bill Glass and Ernie Green I put in there too. The Vintage Browns doesn't mean it was the best Browns, just sort of guys that I think um, illustrated a, uh, this. They symbolize a different era of the team, and and I thought uh, players that people would like and identify with. Yeah, and it's fun you have players from different generations too. So, yeah. you know, everybody should be able to find something in there. So. Uh, we can talk more about the book at the end if you want. But hey, speaking of vintage Browns, Terry, yes. it was pretty vintage Browns the other night on Monday, the way they could <laughs> oh, not yeah. pull out. I just made that up on the fly. I did not plan yeah. it. But uh, the way they could not pull out that game on Monday night, 16 to 14, losing I to know. the Raiders. Uh, Terry, you wrote about just kind of how gut-wrenching it was for the fans and for the team to go through that after the COVID delay and everything. What was your What were your takeaways from that? that game well it's along your gut wrenching i don't know how many times a cleveland team has screwed up what i thought while i was writing a really fun good story <laughs> you know yeah this yeah. is gonna be a great story nick mullins of all people and he's scrambling around like he's patrick mahomes or fran tarkington whoever you like and he finds harrison bryant wide open in the end zone and then greedy williams picks off the pass they've got to have this one like Nick Mullins said, it looked like it was going to be a night for Cleveland was the way he put yes. it. Yeah. yeah, Nick Mullins has even fallen into it. Well, welcome to town, Nick. Um, but you saw what you know what happened. But the moment uh, Carr got that ball back again, it just – I'm thinking, even when Chase uh, McLaughlin missed that kick in the first half, I actually said and mentioned at halftime scribbles, this could really cost them. Because you could tell it was a low-scoring game. And so every point was going to be precious. Extra points were going to be precious in that game. Absolutely. And, and it turns out, I mean, here's the agonizing thing among that game. If you were told, David, before the game, the Browns would, A, score more touchdowns than the Raiders. B, the Browns would make no turnovers. Do you think they would win? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what Kevin Stefanski preaches every week is don't turn the ball over and, uh, and, and get a couple touchdowns. Yeah. And get a couple touchdowns. And that's exactly what they did. And they actually almost stopped the game and give them the ball. They finally scored a touchdown in the fourth quarter. 
Yeah. Yeah. So the second time in nine games. Yeah. So like we, you know, we went through this last week. It it was a fire hose of news coming out of Bria every day. There were guys testing positive Mm -hmm. going on the list. Who's coming off. And I can't even imagine what it must've been like for the coaches and for Andrew Barry and his staff to try and, you know, they got to find players to fill in for guys who are out and, and the two day delay, like I thought the Browns and we, we talked like for 30 seconds in the press box after the game, but I really give the Browns coaches an A for preparation Yes, going into that game. And you've been really big on pre-snap penalties and not, you know, not there having was none of that. There was none, none of that. that stuff. And Kevin Stefanski talked last week about Mullins and like, Hey, he knows what we do. He knows our shifts. He knows our motions. And that played out perfectly. Like I gave the coaches an A for like pre-game preparation that everything was tightened up and I'm sure they scaled back, but to not have any of that stuff happen was huge, but I'm giving the coaches a D for maximizing what they had on the field during the game. I thought they could have done a much better job. And I can explain some more about that, but like the thing, there's a way to do it. And you watch the really good teams when they're shorthanded, they find a way to do like conservatively creative stuff mm-hmm. where they get their best players. Like, you know, you see the chiefs and they give Tyreek Hill a, a jet sweep. Yeah. And it's an easy play to get Tyreek Hill the ball and the Browns. It just seemed like they didn't do anything to help themselves the other night. It was like, you know what? We have Nick Chubb. We have three fifths of our, of our awesome offensive line. And we're going to run into a nine man box and we're going to keep running into this nine man box until we break something. And they just, that was just their attitude the whole night. They made nothing easy for themselves. That was just my take. What do you think of that? I think they, they coach scared during the game. By that, I mean, if we'd run these five or six sets or whatever they're doing, this is, um, we won't make any turnovers to get to that point. And maybe we could win it ugly. I, I, I sense that. And to be, to be fair, Mullins had one practice with the starters Saturday. And even though he has, I always like this mental reps thing, but look, it's like I'm doing mental reps now at my, for my health club, you know, so we're just going to call the, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the 15 laps I run on the track plus the 20 minutes on the, uh, on the elliptical. I'm just going to call that done. Cause I could picture myself doing it. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it just, which team, Coached more, de- more desperately the other night. The Raiders yeah. coached more desperately. They yeah. really did. To your, to your point, though, by the early in the second half, you could see Mullins's confidence growing, and he wasn't even really close to an interception. I don't recall one that like the Raiders dropped or anything. Uh, you know, he was either incomplete or uh, on target, and that would have let you know if you go back to the third and three call that everybody's going to go. You want the ball in Chubb's hands. But I actually was thinking, you know, if they fake it to Chubb, they could just dump a five-yard pass to Hooper or somebody like that for a first down. Yeah, and it's easy, right? We're up in the press box, and it's easy to yeah. second-guess this, second this stuff. But it's like, yes, Nick Chubb should have the ball. But, like, I just felt like the whole night, and especially on that play, they they didn't they didn't make – make it easy on themselves. Like they could have used some different formations to lighten the yes. box. I mean, there were nine guys in the box. Can you not formation out of a nine man box? Can and you, you also know when, when you do have Chubb and they, you've been running the ball, a play action does buy you an extra, probably an extra second, which doesn't sound like much, but when you realize the average NFL quarterback throws the ball in 2.8 seconds, um, Tom Brady is about 2.2 Baker's about three. 
So if you could buy yourself an extra second or so, uh, you're probably going to find somebody for a five yard pass and that's all you needed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but then if, if there's a drop, we'd be sitting here talking about like, why can't you give the ball to Nick Chubb? Exactly. So I, I get all that, that's, but there's but, always the risk. Yeah. Of that. But, but it, you know, just, they did not make just in the theme of, they did not make things easy for themselves. It, right. And you're I, correct too. I was kind of wondering if they'd run one of those end around the receivers or something like that, but. Um, even during the course of the game, just to give the Raiders defense something to think about. Or like, yeah, yeah, so how about some, how about some no huddle, like to, to tire the defense, to tire the Raiders defense out a little bit. There was just, you know, the Raiders ran a fake punt to get a first down. There was just, the Browns did nothing to help themselves. They're just like, Hey, this is who we are and we're going to win or lose this way. And I I just thought it was, it was a little bit, like you said, they were, they coached tight. They they coached, they coached, they really coached not to lose. And then in the end of the game too, where I thought for the most part, the cornerbacks were kind of tight on the receivers. They definitely did go into the dreaded. uh, We had a question from one of the readers about the dreaded uh, defense. uh, The prevent defense. defense. Yep. Yeah. And it showed up at towards the end of the game. Yeah. And, and just, you know, Doug Maurice, our, co- our colleague uh, wrote a column here this week where he was looking at that third and three play. And I, I thought he made some really good points. Like if, are you going to run behind Blake Hans and Harrison Bryant on the yeah. right side on the last play, or do you want to run behind Joel Batonio and David Njoku? Now Harrison Bryant is like the worst of your blocking tight ends. Mm-hmm. David Njoku used to be a not great blocker, but he's turned into a decent blocker. And, and if you know, the Browns who are so big on analytics, I saw this stat and it really struck me like on the left, the Browns, when the Browns ran left the other night, they had 10 carries for 63 yards. When they ran right, they had four carries for minus three yards. Yeah. The Blake Hans's side. So like, again, it's easy to sit up in the press box and, and, and critique this stuff. But I, in, in terms of like analytics and approach, I just, I was really thrown by just, it just seemed very unbrowns like to be running right on that last play, unless they saw something they thought they could exploit. And they're asking their center, JC Treader, to make a, a reach block on Jonathan Hankins, who weighs 335 pounds. And Jonathan Hankins was lined up to the right of JC Treader. That is a tough block. I don't know that any center in the league can make that block. So, and now to be very fair to the Browns, um, the effort was extraordinary. Absolutely. The willingness to play different positions. I mean, I saw Pro Football Focus gave Joe Batonio like a left, a great at left tackle that was like elite. And he hadn't played the position since college. Nevada. Yeah. Since yeah. he was at Nevada. Cause the moment they drafted him, they just put him at guard and that was the end of it. Um, and then you look at some of those guys in the secondary, I mean, they, you know, MJ Stewart and uh, who else was back there that, uh, well, greedy. I thought greedy played pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that they picked on him a lot, but, you know, I, I'd rather go greedy than I would Denzel Ward if I'm Derek Carr. But Derek Carr can pick you apart. He really can. I Derek Carr is a mystery to me. Every time I see him play, I think this guy's like good, really good. And then you look at his career record. He's been the same. He doesn't win games. He doesn't. I mean, there's been so much dysfunction in that organization. Yeah, you know, and that's, and, and, and that's, that's a big yeah. part of it. And, and turnover and coaching changes. And he's had a role with a lot of stuff. But you know, you're, he, he, he can like look like Ryan, a world beater some weeks. He can. Right. But you might be like Ryan Tannehill, too. Remember, Tannehill got out of Miami. He goes to a different system in Tennessee. And you're, he's winning a lot of games. So, yeah. So, that could be it, too. Yeah. But it, it, it's always remarkable to me how the eye test is way beyond what the stats show for Carr, but then you look at some of his like individual stats are pretty good. 
so anyway, but by the way, do you think, and I would argue this, they win that game with Case Keenum. Forget Baker not playing. Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 Nothing against Nick Mullins, but just, I think the playbook would have been bigger. Yes. And that would have given them a lot more options. And like you're talking about in terms of rollouts and and stuff. I I know Baker was really heartbroken, but I tell you, the guy was probably just crushed was Keenum because he thought, you know, he, he still wants to play. He's not just there to hold a clipbook and catch a check. And he thought this was, if you listen to his interview, this is, I'm ready, you know? Yep. And he's probably looking at uh, the Raiders going, you know, this is like Denver. We can beat these guys. We'll beat them ugly. I'll do what I, need, what I do. And, you know, I even have Chubb this time. It's just not me and Dearness Dur- Johnson. Remember, that's how they beat Denver. Uh, and then, bang, that happened. So that, that was the start. I was really – really pleased overall with them. It, it was discouraging to see that what happened with the ending, but that game could have been a complete disaster with penalties and mistakes and all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, the preparation was really strong. I, yeah. I just thought there were points of the game where the coaches could have just given them a little push to get them over the top. And mm-hmm. I, they I don't were afraid. think, I think they were yeah. afraid. Yeah. Um, hey, Terry, I want to talk about something real quick that you wrote about earlier this week, the Browns in the fourth quarter and late in yeah. games. Uh, you, your column was about just the, the struggle that they've had to put games away to score points late. This has been ongoing, and, and some of the stuff you wrote about really bore that out. Well, I wanted to look, uh, first of all, the, the first time I, I noticed that Hayden Grove, one of our colleagues from Cleveland.com, I think it was after seven fourth quarters, they had had like one touchdown. That's when he first met her. So I started looking at that. And of course, then Nick Mullins actually has one. So then I go back. Okay, so that's two in nine games, touchdowns, total 14 points in nine fourth quarters. So think about that. That's like two, two games plus a quarter, 14 points. So that's terrible. I know it's hard to score in the fourth quarter. So then I looked up, well, where do they rank in the NFL scoring? They're at four points a game in the fourth quarter. That was 30th out of 32 teams. Then I go back and thought, well, I know there were some games last year, but how were they in the fourth quarter? Well, actually, they were pretty good. They were like eight points a game, and they were ranked 10th. So it's a big dip when you're talking about close games. And last year, the Browns had nine games decided by seven or fewer points. They were seven and two. This year, they've got, they just had, that was their ninth game. Same thing, seven or fewer points. They're four and five. You know, now the analytics Crew always talks about uh, there's a big luck element in that, and it comes back to get you. Maybe, but I'll also say part of winning a game that's close is just like in baseball. Do you shut down the other team in the last couple innings, or do you give up? You know, give up points. And actually, the defense in the fourth quarter has not been that bad. It, it, it it's not awful. So the problem was they weren't real good in the fourth quarter early in the year, and they've been awful in the last nine games. Yeah, and, and you look, they did close, the defense did close the game out against the Ravens, and then yep. they couldn't close it out the other night. And they, Miles Garrett was getting chipped or double teamed on every play. Um, and he's, and you know, you talk about baseball, he, he's your closer. Guy, he's your I closer. And yeah, yeah. He, yeah, he couldn't he's make any plays. He is. Yeah. I'm still mad, by the way. And to be, and I, you know, we don't do a lot with officials. I thought the call on Wyatt Taylor on, on uh, Chuff's touchdown run was iffy also. Yeah, I did too. I, I was wondering if it was somebody else that they called it on. They got the wrong number um, because it looked like he had his hands inside yeah. on that block. But yeah, you're right. That was a weird one. But they got I mean, the touchdown. Compared to what they're doing, I mean, they're doing everything short of like taking the uh, 
the rope from the you know the how they the guys are wearing the headsets and the and the and the and the cord and tying miles up with it. I mean, it's incredible <laughs> what they and you know the, you can see the networks are even they're showing the guy they're grabbing his helmet and I know it's football and it's a war, but um, this is it, it really is ridiculous. And I know it's miles has finally just stopped talking about it. He's just so frustrated. And the guy's out there playing with a groin pole and everything else. And um, that's why to me. I so wanted to write the stories I'm talking right now. <laughs> and Nick Mullins did it, and something happened on defense. They got the big sack at the end of the game, or whatever, and they won 14 to 13. And was that the most fun game for the Browns you've had in a long time? That's the story I wanted to write. Yep, it didn't happen. So, um, all right, Terry. Hey, let's look at the AFC North real quick. Uh, the Browns could have been in first place if they won the other night. They're now in last, but all is not lost. And um, our colleague Scott Pasco, pa- Scott Patsko has been writing about this. The the division tiebreakers are in the Browns' favor. Um, they they own the tiebreaker against the Bengals because they've beaten them, and the Ravens' division record is one and three. So if the Browns, you know, if they probably have to win the last, the last two games are more important to their playoff chances than the Packers game, but we'll see how things go. But the the Bengals are eight and six and so are the Ravens. The Steelers are ahead of the Browns at seven, six and one. And of course the Browns at seven and seven, but there are a lot of people after the game saying, Oh, well, there goes the playoffs, but there's these division tiebreakers. The Browns could get back into it real quick. If they win the next two, that could make that last game against Cincinnati real interesting. Well, Scott had more stats and all that than I did when last Sunday, I, because first of all, I didn't even know how the heck to write the Raiders game for the weekend because everybody kept going down. So I just talked about how the last two games would be defining for the team and also for Stefanski and Baker, because, you know, they're two and two in the division. Again, you want to see a team have a winning record in the division. And so I'm, you know, that's what, that's what I wanted to, uh, to really watch because last year I believe they were three and three in a division because they got beat twice by the Ravens. They split with Pittsburgh and they beat the Bengals twice. So four and two would be progress there. Um, I have somebody say to me, he goes, what if the Steelers won this thing? That would be something. And, you know, it's like, really? But as I call them, they're like this glob of gum on your shoe. You can't get rid of the Steelers. Even when they had the duck a couple of years ago. Remember, they were actually in contention for the last two weeks of the season there. They are just hard to get rid of. Um, but I want the Browns to be that way. I want them to be the, the glob on Pittsburgh's shoe. Or Cincinnati, where it's like, you know, we can't get rid of these guys. Yeah, and they're they're there right now. But you're right. Going back to your fourth quarter stuff, it's all about the fourth quarter. All that, yeah, all and that has quarter. to do with Baker playing poorly, Kevin having trouble with this play calling. Yes, you know I've gotten a lot of emails where they've been missing these offensive linemen, and this that's correct. But you have to also put it in the whole context of the NFL now, where injuries are everywhere. Our guys are out everywhere. Well, didn't Kansas City start with five new offensive linemen this year? I believe mm-hmm. they did. Because mm-hmm. I remember I was just shocking thing when I was in Kansas City uh, for that game and I was prepping for that game. I, they got five? Because like Mitchell Schwartz suffered a back injury and you know, all these other things. And so. And the good, the good teams find a way. I mean, you'd be hard pressed to find a team that has had more injury problems than the Ravens, including, no. Lamar, including Lamar Jackson, who's been yeah. out. Um, after that tackle by JOK and they just, you know, they're right in the thick of it as always. So, 
All right, Terry, um, it's going to be hard to project what's going to happen in Green Bay, but the Browns, we just found out before we started taping here that they're getting uh, Austin Hooper back off the COVID list today. They just announced that. And Greg Newsom II is not going to be available for Saturday's game. So we'll know more the next couple of days in terms of who can come back. Also, Kevin Stefanski is going to be available to coach. And by the way, that clear. You know, when I said when I said uh, a pass to Hooper, I forgot he was out. I actually meant Bryant. It was one of those because because he had already caught the TD pass. Remember the on the third and three where I wanted to do a play fake and throw to tight end. Right. Bryant was the one I was thinking of. Right. Uh, I figured they probably paid more attention than Joko, but Bryant, you know, he could do that. Yeah, and he's got good hands too. So, all right, Terry, let's take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk some Cavaliers. Um, a little bit of Guardians. There's some sale news happening the last few days we'll talk about your faith column waffle house yeah. is the theme uh we'll do a few hey terry questions and we'll do a quick terry's trivia we'll be right back on terry's talking welcome back to terry's talking david campbell and terry pluto back here on the pod terry uh there's another team obviously having a COVID outbreak the cavaliers they had to uh, postpone their game against the hawks in atlanta on sunday night dealing with covid they're 19 and 12. They're third place in the East. Who would have thought we'd be saying that in late December, huh? And they've won eight of their last 10. They're playing Boston tonight in Boston, assuming things hold the way they are. So uh, what's your take on the Cavs these days? Well, I'm not giving guess about tonight's game or whatever, but when you're talking 31 games, you're talking almost 40% of your schedule and you're seven games over 500. And on top of that, for the first, I think, 25 games, you had the NBA's toughest schedule. So this first half, almost, has not been a fluke. This team's playing really good basketball. They have an identity with their um, their defensive style, and they move the ball. You know, they had seven guys averaging in double figures. Nobody's averaging 20. You know, Darius is close. And they're getting a lot out of love. Uh, it's just been... Uh, it's been wonderful to see that. So I don't think unless they have cataclysmic injuries or some, and this is the kind of season where almost anything could happen out of nowhere, but it would have to be something coming seemingly out of nowhere. I think to derail them from ending up with at least a winning record and making the playoffs. Yeah. And they've had their share of, uh, adversity the last week, especially going into tonight's game. I think, uh, let me see if I can get the list straight here. So Jared Allen is on the, is in the, COVID protocols, Lamar Stevens, Dylan Windler, Denzel Valentine, RJ Nemhard, and then last week, Evan Mobley and Isaac Okora were in there. The, the uh, Cavs going to the Celtics game tonight. The Celtics look like they're going to have Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. They played the other night, uh, but they're without Al Horford, Grant Williams, Jabari Parker, um, and guards I mean, jo- like Josh. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's like the replacements, that old movie with Keanu Reeves in it or I mean, something. I- and this is like designed by Las Vegas to take people's money. <laughs> something to bet on, right? So let, I want to ask you something. I mean, like, and you don't even know what you are. You might as well just spin a lottery wheel. I don't gamble at all. But I'm just saying you just. Yep. Hit why. That's why I've talked the big picture in the Cavs. The specifics for right now, it's, it's who knows. Now, what I've been told about the Cavs situation is that a couple of the guys have sort of mild flu symptoms and the rest are asymptomatic. So mm-hmm. it's not as if it's much like the Brown situation. It's not as if these guys uh, are what we hear about and, um, with so many people in the hospital and that type of thing. So speaking of big picture, one thing I wanted to ask you is there's a lot of really 
good, interesting turnarounds in the NBA this year in terms of coach of the year candidates. Uh, I mean, Steve Kerr's got the Warriors playing great again. Uh, you know, you look at what's going on in Brooklyn, like, but JB Bickerstaff has to be in the mix and in the conversation for coach of the year, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Because probably the national media isn't aware, but he changed their style of play after their first two games. Yeah, they were doing that more of we're going to run down and fire up the threes. And they gave up like 130 some points and high 120s. And, you know, this big lineup. And that's why I thought it wasn't going to work because I thought they were going to play the same, frankly, what I think is a dumb style in the NBA for most teams. They act like they're just as athletic as everybody else. So let's just run and gun and act like everybody else. When you're not that athletic, why are you doing this? So he looked at that and said, no, we're bigger than everybody. And on the run, uh, in practice, he slowed them down. No, we're not going to run as much. We're going to throw our outlet passes. We want layups and that, but we're bigger. Let's just throw the ball over everybody. And you can see as he keeps changing uh, how they get the ball, the big men in different ways with the high-low passing. Absolutely. And the other thing is he's in year four of a LeBron rebuild. He's had to endure. Remember, he took over for uh, Beeline at the end of the year that was, uh, uh, I think he coached 11 games that year. I think he was six and five or five and six. Then he, all of last year, and that was just, that was another mess. Uh, this is a guy, by the way, he's been like an interim coach twice of previous teams. You know, he finally has a place where he is the coach, and this is his team. And the GM, Kobe Altman, gave him some talent. Also, G, you know, Kobe can't keep going through coaches either. He went, you know, he inherited Tyron Lou, and then he uh, brought in Larry Drew to replace Lou. Then he brought in Beeline. That didn't work. He's got to, these guys have to make this marriage work, and they are. Yeah, and it's, if you're thinking about the national voting for coach of the year, I, I think voters like this kind of a story where mm -hmm. JB has changed, he's helped to change the culture. And Chris Fedor, our colleague, wrote about this at the start of the season. You know, he's got these five themes, yeah. one more. And, to, and, and they, they chant one of these five principles every time they break a huddle. I think that's, that is more than just like you got a, you got a good bunch of good players and you're winning a lot of games. I think that turnaround thing and that narrative might get him some votes for that award. So we got a long yeah. way to go before then, obviously. You know, a, lot but, of people have, a lot of people have slogans, but he put feet to it. Um, yeah, that's a good way to put know, it. Thing, what do you, that's not how you talk, it's how you walk. And so he's been able to do that because I remember reading that thing with Chris wrote, which was a really good story with all the slogans and this early in the season. I'm like, well, that's nice, but we'll see what they, they get, you know, from that. Well, they got that kind of style and the roster is really pretty drama three. Now, Kevin Love is bought into coming off the bench. That was the only big question. The rest of these guys, I mean, they're all, they're all pretty good guys. Nobody has a head case reputation. So that's why when fans want to start, start making significant changes on the team, you're out of your mind. Yeah, you it's working. Small, and I'm, I'm going to be interested to see, even with guys missing from the lineup, it seems like they want to keep Kevin Love coming off the bench. Yes. And not absolutely. put him into the starters role, no, even though they're missing some starters. Gonna, yeah. Unless they're like down to six guys. He's, he's, I've been told this from the, on top. They want him off the bench. They want him between 18 and 22 minutes a game. They fear that if they start playing him more – uh, here comes the injuries again. And also what they're doing is they're hiding Kevin defensively. And so this way, remember how other teams have put him in a high pick and roll and he's out there chasing some small forward or something. 
or a shooting guard coming off of that. Well, this way he's primarily out there against the backups. So it isn't as tough on him defensively. And he's, he's killing these guys, you know, on offense. So they want to keep that going. Rubio's a guy they could put in the starting lineup if needed, but um, they don't want to touch Kevin. It's like you finally have something working with this guy after the last several years. Don't, you know, don't, well, it's not just don't fix what's not even broken. You finally fixed it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think if you talk to JB and Kobe Altman, they would say one of the things they're most proud of is that this is all sustainable. Like the yeah. way they play is sustainable. Um, everybody's role is sustainable guy. Yeah. It's like, it, this is built for the long haul. And I think that's something that they've really strived to get going here. As you mentioned in the post LeBron era. So, all right, I the Cavs, sorry, Terry, go ahead. David, another point. I think that's why a lot of fans have grabbed onto it, depending upon what era you came to the Cavs. I mean, some people identify with the miracle of Richfield in the middle seventies with those guys, others with the price Doherty Nance group, you know? So that's, that's what's happening here. And those, um, especially the second group that I covered for the Beacon Journal from um, 85 through 93, uh, consistent playoff teams just were came on for came in and rank up running Michael Jordan, but shoot, those are good teams and played it the right way. All right. So tonight's game Wednesday at Boston, 7:30. Then the Cavs are off till after Christmas, the day after Christmas on Sunday, they're home against Toronto at six. Then next Tuesday, they're at New Orleans at 8. And then on the 30th, they are going to be at Washington. That's a 7 o'clock tip. So hopefully all those games get played. I know the NBA wants to keep the schedule moving, and hopefully the Cavs and everybody can get healthy and keep that moving. So, all right, Terry, let's talk some Guardians. Um, Some news came out this week, and Paul Hoynes, our colleague, has been tracking this. There's news of a potential transfer of some of the ownership of the team to billionaire David Blitzer. Uh, Blitzer's he's minority owner of the 76ers the New Jersey Devils hockey team he also owns um, Premier League team interest I forget which Premier League team but also he owns uh, the Yankees farm team in Scranton Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania what do you think of this news of David Blitzer taking over John Sherman's share of the team and, and what does this all mean well interesting thing a lot of those investments he made um, with a guy named uh, Josh Harris uh, they've worked together on the, the Devils, as you mentioned, the Sixers, uh, the soccer teams. I think Blitzer himself has gone off and like bought the Triple A team and baseball to Granton. Curious. They, they own pieces of, by the way, they also bought 5% of the Steelers last year. So they're buying these little bits. Now, are they positioning themselves somewhere to, now that they are the primary ownership group with Philadelphia, with the Sixers, but are they positioning themselves to, to become a majority owner in the Indians or the guardians, excuse me, or will they be content? 35% is a nice chunk that does position you to get to 51%. Cause I do know that Paul Dolan would have been happy to have John Sherman eventually take over the majority ownership of the team and him stay as a minority owner because they worked together, had good connections. You know, there was a good synergy there. So I don't know Blitzer. It doesn't, you know, he doesn't, he's not a Midwestern guy. He's a Philadelphia guy where Sherman was from Kansas city. So I remember Sherman telling me for 13 months, he and Paul Dolan 
exchanged interviews, exchanged emails on their things. Of, they went to dinner a few times, talked on the phone before they finally entered into that thing where he originally bought 15% and went up to 25%. It's back down, by the way, to 15%. People keep reporting. I've written this and people keep reporting 30%. No, it's not it. So this would not only take Sherman's uh, percent or Sherman's 15% out, it also would set up um, him to, you know, get more, bring more money into the situation. And that doesn't mean the Indians are going to, the guardians are going to, uh, you know, suddenly become big spenders. But I, you know, I, I believe that this has been now bubbling up for a while. Because remember, Paul Dolan and Antonetti both kept saying they weren't coming back with a $50 million payroll. They weren't going to say what it is, but they, they certainly indicated what's going on. I heard somewhere in the 75 to 80 range. Um, they didn't say that, but that's what I've been told. So I'm, I'm curious. I hope, I hope it's the right guy and I hope it comes through, but it looks like this is a deal separate with Blitzer from all these other deals, which are part of this holding company and all these other things. But these are the guys now that buy these franchises you know, they're, they're usually there's a lot, bunch of partners. Sherman has several pa- partners that bought the uh, Royals with him. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and they are safe investments. I mean, if you think about it, if you, if yeah. you're a billionaire, this is basically a, a, a trust and it's like an antitrust classic operation. buy and hold. If you, you, the yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, it's going to go up. It's like, uh, it's like buying one of these NFTs that you know is going to go up yeah. or buying a painting. There's only one yeah. Cleveland guardians, like, there's never, you know, it's the only one of its kind and, and there's a limited number of pro sports teams. So I remember uh, when I wrote the book, False Start, um, and Carmen Policy was a big source for me in that book about how the Browns were bought. He said the, at one point the bidding was going on and Al Werner says, uh, this is getting too high. You know, Werner had the money, but I'm just sick of these guys and all this. And Policy, policy said, he said to him, Al, this is like a Picasso. They're not making any more Picassos. They don't become available, to your point. You buy it now. If not, somebody else is taking your Picasso. This is your chance to get a Picasso in Cleveland. And so then he went and spent the money. But you're correct. And that's why these, I think some of these holding companies and that even know 5% of the Steelers or whatever, because they probably, if they decide to sell their 5%, they're going to, in five or 10 years, they're going to probably double or triple their money there. Yeah, yeah. So real quick, before we move on, one of my first reactions was, and I know Paul Dolan has been very strong about making sure the team stays here long-term yeah. and the new lease runs through 2035 at Progressive Field. If we were to see David Blitzer become majority owner of the team in five, eight years. Is there any, you, you know, you grew up in Cleveland, you know how important the mm-hmm. team has been yeah, to the to city. Is there any, life. yeah. Is there any, do you have any reservations or concerns about him maybe moving the team someday since it's not uh, the Dolans yeah. have been, they've lived here forever, you know? Yeah, and, I mean, and, you yeah. feel, you always feel more secure with the Dolans than, than you would with somebody from out of town, but given their vast holdings in so many different areas, a little like Dan Gilbert, you know, Dan Gilbert's got real estate and the mortgage companies. And I don't know how many casinos he still has. He's, you know, he's got all this stuff going on. But once I really looked at all that and I realized he's not going to move the Cavaliers, you know, he is part of, he, he told me he used the word synergy. It's part of the whole package of what we're selling. Well, 
the Guardians would fit into their whole package of sports and entertainment investment. Um, they're also trying to buy, apparently, the Utah uh, MSL team. That's another thing that's going on there. So, But some of this is what this Harris guy and some is Blitzer on his own. So they got cash. Yep, they do. And if we see uh, anything that we learned from the Sherman thing, and Paul Hoynes, our colleague, has written about this, that the Sherman uh, – interest did result in a higher payroll like you were talking about so they're probably oh, yeah. if on the field this influx of money probably would mean a higher payroll and if if history's any god uh among most things i remember writing this story because i talked with sherman after uh, this is after they signed Encarnacion, and sherman told me that was one of the kind of debates that he and paul dolan had was do you really go in for Encarnacion? you know and i think they they spent some money on somebody else that was after the the World Series um, there in uh, in 16. And Sherman said, well, you know, I've made my money in natural gas. And you have to be willing to sometimes drill in different places. Not every, you know, not every place you drill comes up with a gusher. And so it was the same thing here. This guy's been willing to blitzer to invest across the board in entertainment and sports properties. So he doesn't have to be a sniper. You know, he could be a little bit of a machine gun guy, take his shots here, shots there, shot without. Um, and I think that might be a little bit of a mentality he may bring in to lot. Well, let's try this. I'm not saying we give somebody a 10 year contract, but let's, let's go a little deeper. Yeah. There's so much. We don't know about what the 2022 guardians season is going to oh. look like between this yeah, and the labor, labor agreement. Labor. So there's, there's a lot yeah. to be written there. So, all right, Terry, let's uh, talk about your faith column. Christmas is this weekend, obviously. And I thought you had a charming column this week about uh, you and your father and a Christmas that you spent at the waffle house. I just uh, was wondering if you could talk about that real quick and share kind of what that meant. Yeah. I was just thinking about different Christmases in the past and, um, this was back when I was going down to Florida, Sarasota all the time. My dad had his stroke. And um, one of the things that the, I remember was Christmas day, we went to like my brother's house for something in the morning. And then it's like early evening and my dad is hungry and I'm starting to cook something and doesn't, and he, he wants to go out. He, my father couldn't speak. All I could say was man, 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 after a stroke, he's like pointing to the door and he's pointing to his mouth. I'm like, you want to go out to eat? He's nodding. And I'm like, Okay. And I'm thinking, what's open? It's Christmas. Waffle House. <laughs> we got a Waffle House. And I'm kind of curious. It was by a hospital in Sarasota. I'm like, well, I wonder who else is going to be in there. And there was like, nobody else was in a group. Everybody was like sat out there. And I remember there was a waitress and she just looked exhausted. And the cook behind the counter was this guy. I mean, I've been around jailhouse tats, the whole thing. My father, rolled my father in. And, you know, the waitress just uh, brightened up when she saw us roll up and, and a couple of people said hello. And my father, by the way, liked Waffle House too, for another reason. Unfortunately, with losing his ability to speak, he lost his ability to read. So the menus had the pictures of the different, so he could, just, instead of me ordering, you know, he just was pointing at, he got a waffle and he got bacon and eggs and something. And we had a great time at the Waffle House. And it just reminded me, it's kind of like how Jesus and Mary, you know, they go wandering into Bethlehem. There's no room at the inn, as they say. They end up in the stable. Some shepherds show up. Welcome to the first Christmas. Well, it's kind of like if there had been a Waffle House back in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, they might have wandered into there. <laughs> to get some of the, 
<laughs> yeah, it's a. Uh, you always think of Christmas and the the plum pudding and the turkey yeah. and the ham and the fancy uh, huge table and some of the. That was just a wonderful Christmas moment that like was the exact opposite of the typical American Christmas scene. And yeah, that uh, strike me. And the first yeah. Christmas wasn't typical of that. And the other thing that I knew was going on with a couple of the people because you're next to the hospital and it's late at night. I'm sure some of them were on that duty. You know, somebody's in ICU and where you, you get to stay for 10 or 15 minutes with them. Then you wait two hours, you get another 10 or 15 minutes. Well, let's go to the awful house. The awful house that some people got, but the waffle house and see what we could get. <laughs> some of the most wonderful Christmas memories come from very unexpected places. There's no doubt about that. So, all right, Terry, we got some Hey Terry questions this week from readers. You can hit us with a question by emailing sports at cleveland.com and put Hey Terry or Terry's talking in the subject line. Or if you want to hit Terry up on his Facebook page, that's a good place to hit him too. Terry, you put a, po- a picture of Phil Dawson. Boy, you had to rub it in on Browns fans, didn't you, after the missed kick the yeah. other night? <laughs> so uh, this is what people had to say about your solicitation for questions. Um, let's do, since we were talking about Phil Dawson, Paul Taylor was on Facebook and he says, hey, Terry, how many kickers have the Browns had since Phil Dawson? And well, I did not know the answer go. to this. He was let go at the end of 2012 by Joe Banner. He kicked for seven more years after that, I may add. And that was, that was just a silly move on Banner's part. Uh, the answer is eight, unless I miscounted. And um, they've had Cody, Cody Parkey twice. They've had nobody for two consecutive years. And probably they're going to have somebody real soon, if not this season, then next. By the way, trying to find a kicker right now, I mean, I guess you could, but, man, I don't know who that would be. That's a, it's not like Colcutt, you know, who had just been released a few weeks earlier by Kansas City. And, by the way, I see they let go of um, uh, Jamie Gillis and, and let Colcutt do the punting. Jamie Gillen, yep. Jamie Gillen, yeah. And they're going to let Colcutt do the punting for the rest of the year. because. You know, he first of all, he had been punting for, for a fair amount of time. He, he wasn't out that long. And secondly, he'd been doing it forever. Um, I don't know if there's a kicker out there like that. If there were, I want to see him, by the way. Yeah, we need the place kicking family equivalent of the Colquitts to, yes. to send the Browns somebody to help that them. Is that is interesting so. that you do get some of those things, but you don't get kicking families. <laughs> all right. Hey, Terry, this it's question is. Tucker's brother, can he kick? put out a call. So, all right, Terry, this one is from John Stark. He says, Hey Terry, what is Phil Dawson doing now? I can't think of the name of the school. It's a Christian Academy in Nashville and Phil's son, Bo plays on that team. And the coach is Trent Dilfer. And Phil is like uh, doing, uh, I don't know if he's defensive coordinator or special teams. I think if I remember special special teams, teams, coordinator. I think he's coordinating something else too. So uh, they're down there together doing that. All right, we got a Browns question from Bruce Jeffreyan. I wonder if he's related to Boom Boom Jeffreyan, the yeah. old uh, great hockey player. He says, "Hey Terry, when are the Browns going to go for the win and stop playing prevent defense?" Well, it wasn't Monday. <laughs> um, you know, your coordinator has to decide. I have good enough people in the secondary to do that. And I actually think when the Browns are healthy, when they have Newsom and they have Denzel and they have Greedy and you have John Johnson and you have Harrison and you have Delpit, you know, those guys and you, well, 
uh, okay as a linebacker, he could cover. Uh, you can be more aggressive. And I thought they could have been more aggressive in that, but it, it is something that kind of when a team needs a touchdown to win, making a prevent defense makes a lot more sense to me than when they only need a field goal. Because if you just keep giving up those chunk plays, you're setting it up for that. Um, and you also could play your safety somewhat deeper, but you you could still keep your uh, uh, cornerbacks up on the receivers. Yeah, you could. I, I'm always blown away to watching Hail Marys at the end of a game. It's like you hold a team down for 59 minutes and, and 50 seconds, and, on, and you're going to give them a Hail Mary. You're going to rush three and drop eight and let the quarterback stand back there. And, and line and, them all up in the goal line. Yeah, it's like a fi- you, you basically turn the game into a 50-50 proposition. Like, is our guy going to catch it or is their guy going to catch it? If I was, if I would, I would send three rushers and I would send two corner blitzes coming full bore from the outside and just take away that time. If you give a guy a second and a half to, to throw on a Hail Mary, there ain't going to be no Hail Mary. Like, well, David, too, but I never, want to I never sure understand I, that. I want to make sure I got the rule right, but if you know, like they have one or two fast guys, can't you put a cornerback right up in their face and fight them for the first five yards off the line of scrimmage? Absolutely. Just to slow all that down. Yeah. Instead of letting it, letting it let like, like, like the gun goes off and this is the 50 yard dash. Go guys. Yeah. Meet you in the end zone. We'll see who yeah. catches the ball. So anyway, the, that's a little pet peeve of mine, so we'll see what happens this weekend. Sort of like sure there's going to be some Hail Mary that'll happen. It'll make me look uh, like I didn't know what I was talking about. So, all right, Terry, we got a Cavs question from Matt Coso. He says, hey, Terry, can the Cavs' big three front line be better than Darty, Nance, and Hot Rod? That's interesting because if you think about – Doherty was 20 when he came to the NBA because he, he graduated from high school at 16, but he played four years. Uh, Hot Rod was 23. Nance was played a four-year player at Clemson, then played with Phoenix. Were these guys, when you look at Mobley is 20 or 21, I forgot which, Jared Allen is 23, Markin is 24. You know, my, my first thing to say no, because I covered those guys, how good they were, but these guys with the Cavaliers, Marketing, Allen, and Mobley are still so young. And in general, big guys do develop later. So that's a definite maybe. How's that? Yeah, we might have to track this. It be a good story sometime. We it can really just, would be to compare statistical analysis. At, at the different stages of their career. Yeah, yeah. Great question. Thanks for sending that in. And finally, our last one from our loyal listener, Kathleen Thompson. She says, hey, Terry. Jetty Osmond has played great this season. Do you think he continue to play? Can, do you think he can continue to play this way? Well, I never thought he'd play this way in the first place. And that was another guy I would have been wrong about. If they wanted somebody wanted him, I'd have given him away too, along with other bad moves I was ready to make uh, at the end of last year, like buying out love. Um, maybe because he's very comfortable. He's not playing against starters. Remember, we talked about Love. We, we've, we've concentrated on Rubio and Love coming off the bench, but Osmond's a big part of that too. And these are experienced players. You could just tell Shetty sometimes gets too wound up and he goes crashing into three guys or you know fires up a 30-footer. But the energy is there. Uh, he definitely has improved his shot. Um, sure. Can he continue to get give them – 
11 to 14 points a game off the bench. Yeah. And, and they're going to need them too, because you know, they, they're going to have injuries and COVID and everything else, but uh, I'm, we're also talking 31 games. Now it's not three games. It's not 13 games. So he's put together like the team, a pretty good track record so far this season. Yeah. And it's funny, Jared Allen talked about while he was waiting for his big contract to come through, he was putting money in the bank with his game over the summer, like working on stuff. I got a feeling Jetty was doing the same thing. Like he looks, he looks a little lighter to me too. Does he look that yeah, way? I you? Think like he's, he is. Yeah. And the thing that Allen's exact quote I love is he goes, I looked at it like putting pennies in the piggy bank. That's what he said. <laughs> that sounds like grandma Allen must've drilled that into him. When you practice, it's putting pennies in the piggy bank, but that's what he said. Yeah. Yeah. I think JD's got a few in there too. So the way he's playing. So, all right, you ready for a Terry's trivia question? You probably okay. know the answer to this one too. So, all right, we've been talking a lot about Phil Dawson today, Terry. What is Phil Dawson's middle name? I did not know this one. No clue. It ain't Lou Groza. <laughs> it's not. It's Drury. Phil Philip Drury Dawson, D R U R Y. That's a very must be a family name. name yeah, it must be. I like to find out the story about that sometimes. So anyway, I just thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, Terry, we talked about Vintage Browns earlier. Um, you, people can get it online, and also you've done a lot of signing of copies. I know you want yeah, to. Yes, so a quick, lot of uh, signed copies. Still time first, to get I would one. call. I would call the stores first, just to make sure, and then because they have been moving really well, but. I left at all four Barnes and Nobles in the uh, Cleveland area. That's Mentor, and that's Crocker Park, and that's Woodmere, and that's uh, Fairlawn, and also at Learn It Owl Bookstore in Hudson. But do call first because they have been selling. But I, I seriously, I have signed over two thousand books. Left How's your hand? Or there, my hand loves this type of pain because it means money. <laughs> Putting pennies in the piggy bank, right? Peggy's in the yeah, pennies <laughs> in the piggy bank. All right. So there's still time to get that if you want it for a stocking stuffer, Vintage Browns, Terry's new book. Terry, thanks for making time this week. I just want to wish you and Roberta a Merry Christmas. Uh, I know you have some plans this weekend in addition to watching the Browns game. So uh, always a, a special day and I hope you guys enjoy it. Yes, looking forward to it. Awesome. And everybody, listen, be safe out there. There's a lot of COVID going on, as we all know. Please take precautions to keep you and yours safe. Have a Merry Christmas, and uh, we'll see you all next week. Uh, Terry's talking.